Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Honored today to have as my guest, Jane Stricker. And I'm going to booger on your title. What are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, you told it. It was like 15 minutes it long. Is. Yes. It is a ridiculous job title. So I am the Senior Vice President of Energy Transition at the Greater Houston Partnership. And my secondary role, or really probably my primary role, is as Executive Director of the Houston Energy Transition Initiative that the partnership leads on behalf of industry. So I always just tell people I'm leading the energy transition in the energy transition capital. Gotcha. And you actually have the right background for that because you had a long career at BP. Tell me about career at BP. Yeah. So random collection of jobs at BP is how I would describe it, starting with um, working in retail gas station business when I joined BP in 2000. So this is great. Um, when I was at Kane Anderson, one of my partners was a petroleum engineer and right out of school, he went to work for Exxon. He is down in Corpus Christi, meets a girl in a bar and she goes, who do you work for? And he goes, Exxon. And she goes, which one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Yes. Well, and I started in Baltimore and, and, and it's that thing where it wasn't, it wasn't an energy industry. If you worked for an energy company, you worked in a gas station. Right. Um, and, and I really never had, for the first half of my career, any real sense of the, the true size and scale of the energy industry or BP. Um, you know, because I worked in a retail business unit that was part of a retail business that was a completely separate segment from everything else in BP. And so, you know, for the first half of my career, I was in marketing doing, you know, I ran gas stations, built gas stations. And, and operated them and, and did offer development and, and planning, things like that. Um, and, and really with no sense of what happens in the offshore of Gulf of Mexico and, and the, the onshore lower 48 gas business. I, I didn't or the solar really business understand any or everything, of that. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and so it wasn't Is it true until, that a third of the inventory of convenience stores are stolen? Is it, isn't it some, I think it depends some, a little bit. I think they're on average. Yeah. That's probably about right. That's um, so wild. Yeah. I, I, convenience store business is an interesting business. I think I've made more pots of coffee in my entire life <laughs> than, than most people, um, and stocked more coolers. And, uh, so, but you know, it's, it's, there's a little bit scary to it from, I mean, I had a retail background. I worked for JCPenney's in London Fog before I worked for BP. And, you know, when I started running gas stations, my biggest fear was like somebody, in one of my stores getting robbed or shot or right. hurt or, you know, and, and that's really where I learned about safety culture. Um, cause in clothing retail, the worst you're going to get is a paper cut or, you know, stuck on fall. a hanger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but all of a sudden I'm in this environment where I'm wearing a pager, we're open 24 seven, we sell alcohol. I mean, all of the things that create risk, you know, I had to have liquor licenses in my name in Atlanta, Georgia, because I was the manager of all of these convenience stores. And, you know, you're basically relying on the lowest common denominator sometimes working the midnight shift to not sell alcohol to a minor or somebody who's drunk or, you know, I mean, and then and then you've got the risk of people that work for you getting hurt. And so that was really the first time in my career I had experienced a safety culture and having to be cognizant of that safety culture. 
Um, and it and it comes back around for me, obviously. And yeah. So what else later. are you doing at BP? Yeah. So moved to Houston. So made the shift from uh, retail into corporate finance. I had done my master's in finance, my MBA at Loyola while I was in Chicago for BP, and then took a role here in Houston to to manage our our uh, corporate funding uh, for the U.S. operations. And in the time while I was in that role. Uh, was when Macondo happened. And so, um, let's know. see this. My mom listens to this podcast and my dear sweet mom who raised four boys and is so innocent and naive also doesn't know anything about energy. So what was Macondo? Yeah. Mom, this is for you real quick. Every, <laughs> every, the rest of the audience gets it. Yeah. But. Everybody gets it. Um, but yeah, Macondo was the explosion of the Deepwater Horizon rig in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Um, and so I was in our corporate finance organization at the time when that happened. Um, and so talk about, you know, frontline view of the financing challenges of how to manage through that kind of disaster. And I mean, obviously the people on the front line dealing with the actual impacts um, and, and the implications of that and the spill and the cleanup and, and the deaths, um, you know, that was incredibly difficult. Yeah. And I think sometimes people forget that, organizations are people yeah. and people that really deeply care and and don't want to see anyone get hurt don't want to take advantage of people i think our industry gets a bad rap um but at the end of the day it was very emotional for all of us because it was it was a difficult time and we were trying to do the right things um and so i was in corporate finance through that um through the negotiation of our settlement with the federal government uh, all of those things, I sat in the company secretary's office for a few years while we were actually negotiating those agreements with the Department of Justice and the EPA. And then I was asked to take a role supporting that compliance. So we were under two federal agreements for five years, um, one with the Department of Justice and one with the EPA. We were required to conduct and complete a series of, in, with the DOJ, it was primarily focused on process safety. And, and changing our process safety approach and implementing new procedures and processes in our Gulf of Mexico operations and in our well operations. And then with the Environmental Protection Agency, that one was more focused on ethics and compliance. And so ensuring that, and that agreement applied to the entire U.S. operations. Uh, and so 14,000 U.S. employees, and we were required to to, to meet a, a number of ethics and compliance obligations, things like code of conduct training, safety training. Um, we had a federal monitor. We had federal auditors. Uh, and so for, for that five-year period of time, we my team had to develop the processes to make sure that we met all of our obligations. And then we tracked and managed that and provided assurance to the board and to our external stakeholders that we were, in fact, meeting all of those obligations. So I don't even know the metric to ask, but maybe I'll just make this up. Like, how many pages are those two agreements? I mean, yeah, I mean, the agreements it, themselves are each a couple of hundred pages, but the reports that then have to be submitted each year to demonstrate compliance with those obligations, massive. I mean, I, I think we added it up and it was somewhere in, in the realm of, you know, 600,000 pages of documentation to prove that we were meeting all of the requirements of those agreements. Um, two agreements, five years each, two federal monitors, two federal auditors. At no point in time did we ever, throughout that 
those those two agreements over that period of time. We never had a material audit finding, and we never had any issue raised by the monitor. I mean, it was amazing to me, even being in the job, of seeing how seriously people took those agreements and how hard people worked to make sure that we did all of the things that we were required to do by the government um, to, to demonstrate our commitment to doing business in this country. Because ultimately what it comes down to is your license to operate in the country. Right. And, and recognizing that any mistake would jeopardize that license to operate. And, and this is going to sound like libertarian Chuck bashing the government. And I don't intend to. It's more, it's more an intellectual curiosity question about it. Did you feel like the agreements you negotiated with the two government entities Actually, the government knew what they were asking for, and it was actually positive steps, or did it feel more like check the box type stuff? And the, the only reason I ask is just, you know, I'm always sitting here thinking about how do we regulate yeah. correctly? Because I'm a and liber- do the people who do it even understand what right. it is they're regulating? Right? Yeah, we were, we had a panel on our zero, uh, we did a streaming event about the industry trying to get to net zero emissions. And one of the things we were talking about on the finance panel was investors want ESG. And I said, I hate to say this because I love my former investors, but they were kind of like Justice Stewart in his uh, Supreme Court decision about pornography. It's like, I know it when I see it. Yeah. But they truly didn't know what they were asking for. And so the reason I ask is, as much as I'm a libertarian and don't think there should be any government regulation, there actually has to be. So were they... Were they constructive in how they did it? Did they bring in experts? Yeah, actually they did. And and I think, you know, at the time, Bessie, Bohm, those federal organizations who had been regulating offshore operations already were instrumental in helping to define the the nature of the obligations and the process safety elements. So with Best practices to, kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and we we were required to have a process safety monitor in addition to an ethics monitor. And so we had expertise that really um, helped us think through how do we get better at this? How do we demonstrate? And and how do we really change the way we think about things like SEMS audits and and in in the everyday operational activities that we do in our business to make sure that we are thinking about safety. And making sure that the process makes sense. Because the more you're relying on people and human factors, the more likely you are to have something go wrong because people make mistakes. And so the more you can put good process in place and have people understand those processes, at least then when you've decided not to follow a process, there's a deliberate decision-making element to that versus relying on a person and their subject matter expertise to get it right. And so I think on the on the uh, DOJ agreement, absolutely. On the EPA agreement, the, the nature of that agreement was actually based on a document that we submitted to the government, a statement of present responsibility. So after Macondo happened, we were required, we were going to, to be suspended from doing activity in the U.S., by the EPA, which meant that our leases, it meant fuel contracts, it meant any of a number of different things that involved the government, we would be suspended from being able to do any of those things. And yeah, y'all were probably selling stuff to the military, like, you know, jet fuel. Yeah. 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 And so 
um, in order for us to continue to do business, we needed to provide the government with a statement of present responsibility that says we are presently a responsible organization and capable of continuing to do business with you. And so when that report got written that said, here are all the reasons why we are a responsible organization, that became the basis then for that EPA agreement. Show they me. They said, show me. <laughs> okay. Five yeah. years, you say you do all these things. You say you train people on ethics and compliance. You say you have safety training. You say you audit these activities. You say your leaders go through leadership training. You know, show me for five years and we're going to audit you every single year. And so that's where those big giant reports come from to document. Did you do everything you said you were going to do? What does the training look like? How is your executive compensation tied to safety metrics? All of those things we had to document and demonstrate for five years. Well, and, and give me maybe one or two specific examples, because the one you gave when we came over and had lunch with you, Colin and I went over and had, had lunch to just say, hey, here's what we're up to. Tell us about the partnership. The one I loved is you had to send somebody to pee in a cup, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, so we were on federal probation. Uh, for a period of time. So my boss was actually the guy who was required to go meet the probation officer for the duration of our, our federal agreement. And so he would have to go over to New Orleans every so often and meet with the probation officer. And it's federal probation officer, but that probation officer is seeing, you know, criminals from other types Cartel of- members yeah. and yeah, yeah, just Any all of the above. Yeah. So, so yeah, so- we used to have a rule in, in our team. My, I always told my team our job was to keep our boss out of the orange jumpsuit no matter what. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that, and that was sort of how we brought it home to our everyday work. I mean, obviously, we took it very seriously. And it was important to us. We felt like we had this weight of the organization on our shoulders to make sure that we had good processes in place and that we were helping the organization get better. Um, but we also had this very personal, like, our job is to keep our boss out of the orange jumpsuit. So. And did he actually wind up getting drug tested or did we kind of, did, don't, we, did yeah, we joke about that? I think that? we joked about it, but okay. I don't think he actually ever did have to go through that testing personally. So, But no, that's, that's interesting. Were there, is there something surprising out of all that that maybe people wouldn't have thought of uh, either something you had to do or just a compliance result or something kind of just that none of us would have thought of because that that's a wild experience and it's uncharted territory, right? I it mean, is. It yeah. is absolutely uncharted territory. I think, you know, when I would explain to people, like people fundamentally understood the department of justice agreement and the, and the process safety requirements and having to improve operations um, and, and well operations in, in the Gulf of Mexico and, and changing the way we operated to improve safety and put more processes in place. I think people fundamentally got that because of the nature of the accident. I think what always surprised people was when I would say, <laughs> you know, we had this ethics monitor and we had to do code of conduct training. And, and there was this perception when I came into the role with, particularly with the EPA and with some other federal government agencies, that we inherently didn't know to do the right thing. And, and I, I personally <laughs> like get very offended by that view because I worked with these people for 
you know, I had worked in this company for over 10 years and I knew how seriously everyone took their job and how seriously everyone took safety. And so this, this idea that somehow we just didn't embed ethics or ethical thinking, or we didn't teach people to do the right thing. And because of that, somehow people didn't do the right thing. I think it was the piece that I found, um, most and and people when I tell them about the agreements find most surprising. Like I literally would have to track that fourteen thousand employees completed their code of conduct training every year. Um, and and while I think it's important that you have an ethical organization and that people understand what's expected of them and and that they understand that they can raise issues without fear of retribution or reprisal, just the fact that there was this perception that we somehow didn't care weren't trying. I mean, it, it was an accident. Were mistakes made? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it was, it was not for a lack of people wanting to do the right thing. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the thing, so I've got a whole soapbox about one, we've abdicated our role of educating the public on what we do. And I think that's because we're run by a bunch of engineers and God bless engineers, but they don't tell stories very well. And and two, I think there's also, when you're an oil and gas company, you produce a barrel of oil and you sell it into the market. You are not Nike that needs to go out and say, hey, we're better than Adidas, so you understand the yeah. uh, importance of, it, of education and, and the like. So I think we've totally ab- abdicated that responsibility and we need to do a lot better about it. Yeah. The, the other thing, too, that I think's happened... And my podcast listeners are tired of hearing this. So tune out for 45 seconds, but then come back. <laughs> but um, so I'll get folks from what I call the other side. And I call them reasonable environmentalists. So it'll reach out and say, hey, we can't talk publicly, but I want to chat. And, you know, I'll sit and chat with folks. I've got one um, that calls and says, hey, you know, it's not the burning of the hydrocarbons. Because quite frankly, if I didn't have my suburban, I couldn't deal with my six kids. Right. Yeah. Our worry and the reason we fight so hard, and she'll even say, quite frankly, the reason we play a little dirty sometimes, and we know we're playing dirty, is we don't trust you guys. I mean, I think Lee Raymond saying climate change isn't happening, and quite frankly, and I get so much grief when I say this, we're really obnoxious when prices are high and we're rich, and I don't think we appreciate that high oil prices pushes the economy into recession and everybody else is suffering. and so. The, the suspicion level because of those two things is just through the roof. And I think, I think that's kind of the most important thing we need to do yeah. is, yeah. is educate on that front. Yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, that's a big part of what my job is now at the partnership. I mean, I'm leading this energy transition initiative on behalf of industry. Right. Um, it's industry that has funded this work at the partnership for three years um, and and it's the industry players that you would expect that have a big footprint here in Houston. I mean, it's the BPs, the Shells, the Exxons, but it's also Dow. Uh, it's also NRG. It's also Sonova. And, you know, so and we've got midstream players. We've got, you know, primarily renewables players and we've got traditional incumbent players. All that have recognized publicly or, you know, amongst themselves that. We need to think differently about the way we operate our business. We are in a transition. We've been in a transition for 100 years. This industry has always been in transition. I get frustrated when people say, oh, we don't like the word transition. 
we have been in transition for a hundred years. We used to burn wood, wood and then we burned whale blubber and then, yeah. So, and, and, and then it was oil and then we found natural gas and, and then we found fracking. And, and so, you know, we continue to find new ways to produce and provide energy to the world. And that's what this industry does. And it's what it does. Well, what we don't do well is talk about it. Right. What we don't do well is build trust. Um, and I think we are living in a time where there's intentional barriers and divisiveness being created. Um, people want to own an issue, not solve a problem. Right. And so I think there's a lot of pitting people against each other on oversimplified explanations of what's happening. Um, but but in Houston, you know, we have to be successful at this. We have to really figure out how to navigate and lead the transition because our economy and our jobs here depend on it. And so, you know, my role is to find ways to help progress energy transition solutions for the region and for our member companies. Um, and, and in that, create jobs and economic opportunity, drive that innovation ecosystem, figure out, I mean, this is where everything will scale from. It doesn't matter whether you've been, you know, created your technology in Boston or California or Denver, if you want to integrate an energy solution into the system, this is where you need to be in the long term. And the industry players, incumbent industry needs to hear that and they need to know that they need to find a way to think differently about their operating model and, and learn to integrate some of these new solutions into their business models. They're, that's where the transition needs to happen probably more right. than anywhere else. Um, but this is where it'll happen. This is where it'll come together. And so the work that I'm leading at the partnership is really about how do we support that? How do we help educate not only people in Houston, but outside of Houston about the role Houston has to play in energy leadership in the long term? And then, you know, whether it's funding the transition or implementing new technologies or supporting supply chain or helping support the innovation ecosystem, this is what the member companies have come together and, and, and asked uh, me and, and Bobby Tudor and, and Scott Nyquist and Eric Mullins as the, the, the leadership of this to, to drive that forward. And so it's, it's been a really fun uh, first six months in role. And, uh, Drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> oh I would God. think. So insane. It started with, you know, Sierra Week and South by Southwest, like right out of the box and, and, and having to figure out what's the narrative, what's the story we want to tell. And then how do we how do we start to bring more people in and, and engage NGOs and governments and, and universities and people who don't think that that think that the energy transition means shutting down the energy industry, the incumbent energy industry. When. The discussion needs to be how do we bring everybody to the table? Because the only way we win at this is if we can find a way to, to to work together and figure out how to integrate all these solutions. Because at at the end of the day, um, one, this is being driven by not big bad government. This is consumers. Yep. This is investors. This is company, and it's a tidal wave. Yep. So one, it is going to happen. Two, I think when you just said win, in my mind, win means we make this transition by spending five instead of spending a hundred. Cause that, I mean, the 95 that we save in there can do a lot of good stuff for, for Absolutely. humanity. And yeah. so we need to be thoughtful 
that's why I hate the demagoguing about energy, because at the end of the day, if we're not leveraging the existing energy infrastructure, it won't get done. Yeah. I mean, we could if, if we had yeah, it, it just won't happen. Yeah. If we had the United States and we had no energy infrastructure. OK, yeah, we might start with hydrogen, but we have all this stuff. It's been paid for. We got to figure out how to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and you could easily see how. I mean, if you look back at the tech bubble, the amount of investment that just evaporated because it wasn't sound commercial opportunities. It was interesting technologies that ultimately didn't have a, a, a role to play. And and so, you know, on the investment side, we have to figure out what makes sense, what works. I mean, obviously, from a research side, you want to be looking at every option and you want to be, you know, continuing to to push the limits on what's possible. But at the end of the day, to scale it, to make it work, to to, to implement something in an existing system, you got to figure out how to make it fit and and what works at scale. I mean, we're talking about when people talk about electrifying everything. I don't think they they understand that that doesn't just mean more outlets. Like, <laughs> right. So so Pete Shear was uh, CEO of Adventure, one of my portfolio companies back when I was at King. Pete is an engineer's engineer and we go out to california to play in a golf tournament so i take all my ceos out there and this is gosh 10 years ago eight years ago and 24 year old recent college graduate is there talking about the wonders of tesla it's zero emissions and pete is like well where are you going to get the electricity and she's like i plug it into the wall you know and it's just i mean yeah. pete was just his head was blown and i and i said I, I said, uh, I said, Pete, you know, at the end of the day, that's a lack of education that we haven't done. It's yeah, not absolutely that she's an idiot, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, we I, I am a firm believer that the further away you are from the source of things, the easier it is to to not care about where it comes from. Right? Yeah. And and I think it's that way with food, food packaging. We all love our single serve everything. But if you if you were close enough to the plant that was having to, you know, to break all those things down, create all that plastic that is then used to package up all of those little individual serving things that you like to to throw in your bag and go versus, you know, the way it used to be. And I'm going to sound like a boomer and I'm not, I swear, but I mean, I'm, I'm Gen X by three <laughs> yeah, years, same, but I am same. Gen X just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when I think back to when we were kids, like you Things came in bulk and, you know, you divvied it out and, and you went on about your way. Everything didn't come in its own And, and when Ziploc package, bags right? finally showed up, it was magical. Yeah. It's like, well, holy cow, what are these things? These are so great. And my mother still wouldn't buy them. She would only buy saran wrap. So. Oh, nice. Yes. Tons of- but, I mean, it, it's that mindset of we want to we wanna put the blame on the producers. And I get that, you know that we have a bad history of like handing off um, the, the talking points about the role of energy. But, you know, consumers drive this business ultimately at the end of the day in, in both directions. So whether we are successful in, in driving forward on the transition, you know, we need consumers to really continue to push us in that direction. Um, but we also need to, to bring really great solutions to the table and help people understand what solutions make sense and and where you're not really getting the trade-off you think you're getting. Yeah. So real quick, maybe step back. What is the greater Houston partnership and uh, 
maybe, you know, how's it finance? What is yep. its mission in life? Yeah. So the Greater Houston Partnership is the economic development engine for the this Houston region. So city of Houston, 12 county region. Um, it's sort of, I always tell people it's like a chamber of commerce on steroids. I mean, it has been around since the mid 1800s. It is one of the oldest economic development organizations in the country. Uh, we have about 900 members um, who fund the activity of the partnership, but our, our mission is really to make Houston a great place to live, work, and do business. We primarily represent the business community. And so we have an economic development team that is really focused on bringing new industry here to Houston. They are helpful to companies that are looking to, to build a business in Houston in identifying locations. If they want to, you know, if it's a battery manufacturer and they want to build a plant, they know exactly what, what locations are available, where there's real estate, what, you know, how it fits with rail lines and and they do all sort of that economic development work for the region and for businesses. They they're really helpful in understanding what are the incentives that Houston has to offer. You know, we're competing against Denver, we're competing against Florida, we're competing against California. So they tell the story of what the wh why they would why you'd want to bring your business to Houston. We've got a policy team that really focuses on how do we advocate particularly at the state level for policies that will be supportive to our businesses and to our communities here in Houston. So they, you know, we've got a policy team that will advocate for one of the big areas right now is around CCUS policy for uh, deployment of, of carbon CCUS? capture. CCUS? Carbon yeah, capture. Carbon capture use and storage. So, you know, that's a huge opportunity for us in Houston, given the asset base that's here, the emissions base that's here, um, the geologic storage opportunity that's here. I mean, we can make a huge impact in emissions reduction pretty quickly with the implementation of, of carbon capture use and storage, but we still don't have a regulatory regime that will allow it to happen in Texas or nationally. Um, and so, you know, our policy team will help advocate on behalf of industry for the policies that will enable those sorts of projects and technologies to move forward. So you're going to mock me at this. <laughs> you're going to make fun of me for this, but this is this is true. Right? This is not Chuck Yates shtick. This is really true. Do you know what could be the single most effective and its natural carbon capture um, technology in the, in the world? And everybody would say, right, the tree. You tell me. I know soil is a big one. It's a it's the whale. A whale on average, over its lifetime, will absorb 33 tons of carbon. It dies, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Um, number two. But does that carbon get released by the ocean? No, nah, it sits down there at the okay. bottom of the ocean forever. Or, you, hundreds of years, yeah. right? Um, number two. Whale excrement is the perfect fertilizer for plankton. And plankton photosynthesizes, call it 40% of the CO2 on the planet. We have decimated the whale population over the last 200 years. We've gone from four to five million whales down to, we think we've got 1.3 million whales wow. today. And it's hard to grow going forward because they get hit by boats. And so uh, anyway, we're, we're in, if there are 10 steps to creating a narrative and, and creating a good piece of content, Colin and I are like on step one with this. 
But we're really serious about this, that increasing the whale population could do a lot in the way of helping. Uh, so I love to meet those people because we're right here on the ocean, yeah. you know? And it really, it, there really is something, something to do on that front. I do think, and, I, and I'm not going to mock you. I did not know any of those things about. See, whales. nobody talks so about that's it. But fantastic. Yeah. And it was not part of the National Petroleum Council study on carbon capture <laughs> storage that we did. They Sadly, we we may need to go back and revise. Um, but I do think you know nature-based solutions do have a, a role to play. I think we we don't leverage the the land, the space, and I'm not talking about trees, but I'm talking soil sequestration you know there's a lot of work right now with ranchers in in west texas about leveraging their ranches and their ranch land as a as a mechanism um to to store carbon dioxide so you can mock this one of the solutions we were bandying about is we were going to go to musicians and get them to create romantic music for whales to put them in the mood (laughs) yeah uh jewel you were meant for me, splash, 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 or something to that effect. Mock away on that. Well, you know, that'd be one way to get it done. <laughs> Did not mean to divert you. So, <laughs> no, so okay. what else is the partnership doing? So the uh, so the partnership has, uh, we obviously, we do a lot of events, networking. Um, we bring together, I think, you know, one of the things I think the partnership does best is connecting the dots across organizations. And so... You know, to the extent that there are companies looking to do a project on X, we can help them connect to company Y, who's also interested in doing that. We create a forum for them to talk about um, issues of business interest primarily. You know, so whether it's um, the, the um, infrastructure, resiliency, things that impact the Houston region that also impact the business community. And so thinking about, you know, I criminal justice and some of the issues that we've been having around the crime rate continuing to go up. You know, we tackle those types of issues with our business members that impact their ability to to do business successfully in the region. And so that's sort of the the fundamental uh, purpose of the Greater Houston Partnership. And then Bobby Tudor had been the chair of the partnership uh, and it was right at the time, at the end of 2019 into 2020, when we were starting to hear some of the, the big corporates, energy corporates, put their net zero commitments out. So BP, I was still BP at the time, BP had announced its net zero commitment. Shell came out with its net zero commitment. And it was at that, it was two years ago, basically this month, that Bobby stood up at the annual meeting and said, Houston has a responsibility and an opportunity to lead the energy transition. And that's what really kicked off all this work that created my role in this energy transition initiative in Houston. And it was really about, we did, you know, about a year's worth, or the partnership did about a year's worth of work with McKinsey to understand what what are the implications of different scenarios for Houston in the energy transition. You know, we were already seeing significant contraction of energy jobs in the region at that time. And... And yeah, I kind of understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I got booted. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously through COVID and, you know, when at the beginning and when when oil went, you know, right. upside down, it, it, it hit even harder. Um, and so thinking about what how do we make sure that we are future proofing Houston um, for its residents, for the economy and, and making sure that in the long term we still have a great great place to live in the region. And so that work kicked off. 
that strategy got launched a year ago, at the end of June. Um, and then I came in in January to lead the work once they sort of figured out the structure and how they wanted to pull it all together. So actually, at the end of this month, we have our our next Future of Global Energy conference. And so it runs from uh, the 28th of June to the 30th of June. We've got a combination of in-person and virtual events. Um, it will be a bit of a where are we one year in to this new strategy. Uh, and so Bobby will be giving an update on where we are on that. And then we've got Marty Durbin, who is um, vice president at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and he's the president of the U.S. Energy Policy Institute, will be on site as a keynote for that. Event. Is that available to the public? It is. It is. So um, we've got, uh, if you go to the Greater Houston Partnership to the events page, the Future of Global Energy event is there. And it, there's a rate for members and a rate for non-members, but it's it's open to anybody who would want to attend. It's a luncheon event, runs for a couple hours. The, that That's on day two um, at the Hilton downtown. And, uh, and so Marty will be great because I think so much has happened in the landscape over the last six months. Um, you know, we came into this thinking, you know, we're just going to plow forward on energy transition. And then the war in Ukraine happened and supply chain issues continue to, to be a problem for the industry and everyone more generally. And so, you know, it's not slowing down the transition. It's thinking about how do we, how do we make sure that we're not just transitioning, that we're transitioning to an energy abundant future, right? Secure. How do we make sure it's secure, energy secure, yeah. energy abundant? And so he'll, he'll talk a, a good bit about that, that context at the, the global and, and national level. And then the, the third day, which is the virtual day, we've got uh, concurrent tracks on carbon capture use and storage, hydrogen, and then industry decarbonization to really talk about what's happening at the global and national level, what's happening in Houston, and then what's on the forefront, what's happening in, in the innovation space. And so for each of those tracks, we've got three panels that sort of lay out context, talk about what we're doing in Houston, and then talk about with a lot of our new startup companies here in Houston, what's, what's coming down the pike with innovation uh, in those three areas in particular. And then we also have a really great closing panel focused on climate equity. And so, you know, I often say that if the only thing we do in the energy transition is reduce emissions, we haven't done what we're supposed to do. We have to do it in a way that creates opportunities for everybody. And so we'll have a really great discussion with the chief sustainability officer for the city of Houston and somebody from BP and somebody from Houston Community College and the Houston Advanced Research Center talking about, um, you know, how do we make sure that through this transition we're creating opportunities for everyone? Um, to be successful and to improve, you know, pollution issues in communities and to create great jobs that anyone could could um, have access to in the long term. So I think that'll be a, a great wrap up session. No, that'll be cool. Um, I'm going to get you to close with give us the elevator pitch for why Houston because there are folks actually outside of Houston that that listen to us. Yeah. Supposedly there, I have heard this. I don't know that it's true. One of the nuclear submarines in the uh, Navy that's you know trolling around defending us uh, supposedly listens to my podcast every Thursday <laughs> morning and blasts it through the sub because the commander of the sub wants to get into the energy business uh, when they retire. But before you give the Houston pitch, I got to tell my favorite Bobby Tudor story. So Bobby Tudor played basketball at Rice University. 
Bobby Tudor was also gracious enough to finance Tudor Fieldhouse at Rice, i.e. the new basketball gym. And so I run around and tell everybody, you know, Rice is so bad at, at athletics. We name our basketball gym after the career leader in turnovers on the best. <laughs> totally not a true statement. <laughs> I just totally made that up. <laughs> but I say that all the time. Uh, Bobby one time pulled me aside. Would you just stop? Will you just stop? I find it very funny. But uh, anyway, no, I think I think Bobby was definitely the right person to, to kind of lead this charge. Yeah, he yeah. He's doing a fantastic job. And he has such great perspective on all aspects of the energy industry. Yeah. On his his career history, so I think he he really fundamentally understands why this is important, why the energy industry needs to have a big role in it, yeah, and and why Houston and and why Houston is, I mean there are and he's got the gravitas yeah, to the to pull that together. He wouldn't yeah. get up and talk about romantic songs about whales, so <laughs> he would not. Yes, he would not. But I think you know why Houston. I've been I've been here in Houston for. I guess 12 years now, almost 14 years. Um, it, I, I, like I said, I worked for the energy industry for half my career before I actually understood the energy industry um, because I only knew that small piece of it. But being in Houston, you really, I mean, everything in Houston is tied to this industry. We have the medical industry and that's fantastic. And actually, I think that's a huge asset for us. We have space. We have, we've, we have a diversified economy, but you don't live in Houston without knowing someone, working with someone, um, related to someone, or interacting with someone who works in this industry. Um, and so, you know, this is 100% priority for, for this region. It's also the place where we have all of the right assets. We have, you know, we have the ship channel. 44% of the petrochemicals used in the world are produced here in Houston. We have a third of the hydrogen that's that is used in the world is produced here in Houston. You know, with our industrial base, our emissions base, the geologic storage capability, the the industry that's here, this the universities that are here, the number of engineers and talented people that are here. I mean, and you can afford to live here, <laughs> here sure. and rent space. I mean. You know, one a lot of the founders of startups will tell me they came to Houston because God, they can afford to hire people and 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 rent space yeah. for their startup. In and a, I can get a decent house in the Heights. Right, yeah. exactly. And and it's also just a fantastic place to live. Um, you know, the culture here, I think I don't think people realize how best great people the on the planet. And and the food and and all of those things. Time but, magazine uh, I think it was 15 years ago, voted Houston the number one food city in America. We we have amazing food. We do. Yeah. We do. And if you haven't watched this this last season of Top Chef, it's worth it. Yeah. They, they do all the great spots here in Houston. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing is there is this really interesting intersection that is happening here in Houston that will not happen anywhere else. And it's this intersection of digital technology, medical technology space technology and energy industry coming together to create things like, I mean, if you look at some beta factory, I mean, you know, Moji, this intersection of bioscience and chemical engineering, or, you know, I, you see digital happen in a lot of places, but it, a lot of times it's digital for the sake of digital or tech for the sake of tech. 
here it's tech for the sake of solving a really big problem, right? right? How do we create enough energy for the world and in a way that's at lower emissions or, or reaching our net zero goals? And so I don't think there is any other single geographic location in the world where you have this intersection of things going on that position a place to really lead the way. And so, you know, we need to figure out how to get everybody moving in the same direction. But I mean, that's my passion about it is I, I just, I think the time, the intersection of things, the assets, the, the talent and the commitment. I mean, you hear young people in school here in Houston at University of Houston and the energy program, they love this industry and they want to solve this this challenge and figure out how to keep this industry alive in the long term and deliver what the world needs in a way that that doesn't destroy the world. So I yeah, think it's amazing. So I have actually been digging around. I've been opening up Zoom calls and having God, this is gonna make me sound so old, having kids come on and just talk, hey, why are y'all coming into the energy business? Why yeah. are you not? What's going on? And I talked to a second year engineer who told me a story, and this is why I'm actually so optimistic about energy's ability to win back the narrative, is the engineer said for three years, and he's Canadian, Suncor came to my university. The first two years, they gave a speech titled How to Drill a Well, and 25 people showed up each time. And we'll just go ahead and throw them under the bus. It was an old white guy giving the, the, the presentation. <laughs> The third year, basically the same speech was titled Using AI to Image the Subsurface. And they said a 27-year-old uh, Indian uh, engineer who opened it up with, oh, my God, this is so freaking cool. Yeah. 500 people showed up and Suncor had 10x the recruiting class. Right. The amount of technology and challenges yeah. that happen for us to image stuff miles under the ground, drill a three mile well is staggering. If I were an engineer, right. that is the coolest stuff in yeah, the world. Absolutely. You can go to Silicon Valley and write software that helps, you know, eBay or whatever. Nothing compared to the challenges and the intellectual yeah, that's exactly, stuff we have to do. It's so yeah, cool. Exactly. My nephew was looking at my nephew lives in Wisconsin. He was looking at colleges and I had him a number of years ago and I invited him down to look at some schools here in, in Texas and we went and looked at some schools. But I also took him over to the BP's high powered computing center. So my nephew is very much into digital. Like he built his own computer and he's like a lot of young people, like they just fundamentally their world revolves around tech, right? So I took him yeah. to um, the, the, the BP High Powered Computing Center, which was at the time, and I'm not sure if that's still true now or not, but it was like the second most powerful computer system in the world. Um, and and had him sit down with Keith Gray, who, who ran the, the computing center, and hear about how we were using data to figure out where energy is stored and how to get it out of the ground and, and the size of wells and, and being able to, to use digital capability to understand the, right. the opportunity. And, you know, he was blown away. He was like, holy cow, these, this is really exciting stuff. But, you know, the, the traditional thinking is I don't want to go work on an oil rig. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the traditional thinking of the energy companies 
we can't let anybody see this. This is our competitive right. advantage. No, it's <laughs> not. There are no secrets. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the, the last thing I'll amplify on what you say about Houston, um, and I'll get all these details wrong, but I want to say it was 20 years ago, The Economist ran a survey of all the major cities in the world where they basically went out and chose a thousand random citizens of each city, and they asked a series of questions. The delta between answer number one and answer number two that was greatest in their whole survey, and it was like, magnitudes great was the question if you work really hard in this world you will succeed it was something like 87 percent of houstonians said yes yeah. to that and number two was hong kong at 64 or something and they wrote a whole article about houston just going what are these nutso optimists yeah. out there yeah. but I think that's why we have the greatest people in the world i mean we we're optimists we get in the energy business we spend all this money drilling a well, then we turn on and see what we've actually got. And to top that off, we've all been broke at some point. So we really don't have a class structure here. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, you can't yeah. be too uppity around here because I always tell people. Yeah, you never know in this town who's got money and who doesn't. You, yeah. you literally never know when you meet people whether they've got money or not. Yeah, and, and it could change daily. Yeah. Uh, I always say the CEO of an oil company's best friend is inevitably the janitor. And when things are doing well, they're flying around private on the CEO's plane. And when things are poorly, the CEO's sleeping on the janitor's couch. And that's just kind of how Houston rolls. Yeah. And so Bum Phillips, the former head coach of the Houston Oilers, used to always say, I always wore my cowboy hat when I went outside the country. And I told people I was from Houston and they knew I'd be nice to them. So it is. It's a great. I mean, we love it here. I still, you know, I'm a Baltimore girl at heart. I'm still a Ravens fan and always will be. And an Orioles fan, but uh, but we do love it here in Houston, and it's great. And as somebody who has made a career out of just figuring it out, I mean that truly. If I think back about my entire career, it has become, you know, it is basically the motto: just figure it out, just get thrown in something new, and just figure it out, and and do the next thing. And and that's Houston. Just they will just figure it out. We will just figure it out. So it's exciting times to be here, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else right now. Well, Jane, you were really cool to come on. I appreciate this. It was a blast. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I will say I was terrified, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I often ask myself, am I cool enough to go on Chuck Yates' podcast? Because oh. I'm not sure I'm cool enough for the crowd that you uh, want, so. Yeah, right. Um, how do people find out about the partnership website? Yes. Yeah, um, uh, Houston.org is okay. the website. Uh, and if you go there, if you look at events, you can see the Future of Global Energy event. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I talk energy transition all the time. So feel free to reach out to me that way, Jane Stricker on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, we're still building a site, so we don't have a site for that yet. But the the you can find the Houston Energy Transition Initiative strategy and the work that we're doing there on the Greater Houston Partnership website. Cool. All right. Thanks. <laughs>